The Book Club is brought to you in association with the Charles Stanley community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and today my guest is Robin Hanbury Tennyson, the explorer and author. Now, originally, I should say, this podcast was to have taken place in the middle of March, when Robin's new book, Taming the Four Horsemen, Radical Solutions to Defeat Pandemics, War, Famine and the Death of the Planet, eschatological book, was coming out. And we agreed in advance of this podcast, you know, this is becoming, as Covid starts to get a grip, an unexpectedly topical podcast to be doing. It became still more topical because I think on the morning we were due to record it, I got an email from Robin saying... I've just got back from a holiday in Europe and I've got a terrible cough, so I'm not going to be any good at recording. And two or three days later, I heard from Robin's son, Merlin, that Robin actually had been taken into intensive care with COVID. So, Robin, you've lived through one of the the four horsemen you describe in your book. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? What can you remember of it? Well, there's an extraordinary irony in it, because um, over the last two years, while I've been writing this book about the four horsemen and the various catastrophes that I see looming and my rather radical solutions to them. The first one, the white horse, represents pestilence. That, of course, is a pandemic. And actually, as early as page four in the book, which was published on February the 13th, incidentally, I say we are due for a pandemic inevitably. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Everybody agrees with this. And blow me, almost immediately after that, I'm whisked off to Derryford Hospital and spent seven weeks, five weeks in uh, intensive care uh, in an induced coma and have it about as badly as anybody's have it. I was given a less than 5% chance of survival. So, by a peculiar irony, I uh, actually was one of the first people to go right down with the pandemic that I had been forecasting. This became quite a cause celebre because I actually came through and survived. One of the first people to do that as well. Do you remember... What happened? I mean, Merlin told me that you'd been given this terrifying 5% chance of survival. I mean, was that something they said to you or was that once you were down? No, they actually said it to me. What happened was that we got back from a week skiing in France where I'd been very fit, skiing very well for me. I felt a bit wished the next day and actually spent the day in bed. And then uh, my wife dialed not 111, which were on the day we should have been doing this podcast, 17th of March. And uh, ambulance turned up, tested me and whisked me off to Terriford. And then I was in sedation, in an induced coma for most of the next few weeks. But I came out of it from time to time. And uh, it was interesting being in delirium, because with the wonders of modern technology, with FaceTime, I was able to talk to my family from time to time, talking absolute rubbish but it was hugely helpful. And there came a moment quite early on when the consultant actually came down and said, hmm, doesn't look good. You've got two choices. You can either stay where you are and almost certainly die, or we can take you down and do horrible things to you and put tubes in everywhere in intensive care, and you've got a best part 20% chance of surviving. Which do you choose? No-brainer. I said, we'll go for it. It was quite a shock to be told that I was, had a very little chance of surviving. And somehow, thanks to the incredible things they did, I mean, the nurses and doctors were wonderful. They really looked after me so well and applied all the techniques 
for curing coronavirus. I mean, I was on tracheotomy, I was on dialysis, my kidneys backed up, I was on a ventilator, and I was in a pretty bad way. But at the same time, <clears throat> coming in and out of delirium was quite fun, talking to my family occasionally and seeing them. And then there came this extraordinary moment, which I make rather a thing of, because it's suddenly a very popular story, when I was wheeled out into the little garden they have at Derryford. It's one of the first hospitals to have a, a little healing garden. I can remember quite clearly waking up. I was in this bed with tubes and everything sticking out from everything, and four nurses wheeled me into the garden, and the sun struck my face, and I was surrounded by flowers, and I can remember waking up and thinking, I can do this, I can live. And so I'm very keen that every hospital in the country should have a healing garden. And there's been so much recently on the, the power of healing by nature. And, and two brilliant books have just come out recently on it. One by your own Isabel Hardman, The Natural Health Service, and the other The Well-Gardened Mind by Sue Stewart-Smith, which have gone into this and shown how having gardens really is fantastic therapy. And that, combined with the amazing work the doctors and nurses do, actually makes it much more possible to survive. So I'm keen to go raise some money and uh, start getting campaigning for all hospitals to have gardens. Very good. Well, I hope we can help that campaign when you get your act together. Can I ask, obviously, you've been all over the world. You've been to some very remote places. You've been to some very dangerous places. We would assume, therefore, that you're kind of rather brave. And did staring death in the face this way differ from the escapades you've had as an explorer, did you sort of think you're powerless in this case, you're a goner? A very interesting question. As it happens, we looked into this because uh, it obviously was determination as well on my part that got me through. And we found an introduction I did to a, an encyclopedia a couple of years ago in which I say that the most important thing to have to succeed in ventures like exploration is a determination to succeed above all else, and that's what differentiates explorers from travellers. I'm slightly hypothetical story, I told, but I was very passionate. I'd forgotten I'd written it, but it absolutely said, if you're determined to get through, it helps. And uh, there's a nice quote I have from uh, Sir Richard Burton, uh, the great explorer, not the actor, was dying in uh, very near death once in Africa, and he suddenly sits up and says, but to die under a tree, it was not to be thought of. And he thinks that a determination to succeed will overcome all difficulties. And it, there is something in that. That, combined with the healing power of nature, I think uh, got me through. Now, you know, as you say, there is a sort of irony in all this, because your book not only deals with eschatology, with last things, but with a determination to fix them and avoid them. Can you tell me what, you know, before all this happened, led you to be thinking about the four horsemen? And indeed, what made you think they were the best sort of governing metaphor for the book? Well, they fit quite nicely with the threats that the world faces at the moment. The white horse represents pestilence and so pandemics. The red horse represents war, and there's plenty of that going on. Black horse is famine, and that's desertification. 
And my radical solution to that is that it's time we started tampering with the weather. Very scary, but if we could make it rain on the deserts of the world, which we could do, we have the technology to do it, it would revolutionise everything uh, in many ways. And the pale horse, the fourth horseman, is of course climate change and all the other dreadful things we're doing to the planet, like plastic. I have a bee in my bonnet, which I express in the book, which is that we are devoting far too much money, wasting money, I believe, in uh, looking outwards to outer space. I mean, it's quite exciting, wondering whether there's life on Mars, but it really isn't the direction we should be looking. I don't want to go and live on Mars and spend the rest of my life in a spacesuit. And yet $830 billion was spent by NASA last year on space research. Where we have an, a huge infinity, we're only just beginning to realise about, a greater infinity than the infinity of outer space, on inner space, each cube of soil, we now realise, contains more life forms than there are people on the planet. And your and my bodies are covered in life, which is what makes us tick. And these are far more interesting than uh, the sterility of outer space. So I think if research money had been devoted to studying microbes and the whole way in which viruses work and our bodies are so dependent on this, these life forms, which we barely understand because every time microscopes get stronger, we find more of them. If we had been doing that for the last few years, instead of messing about in outer space, perhaps, we would have been in a better shape to deal with the coronavirus and other pandemics which may be coming in its wake. It's quite clear that although wonderful doctors and scientists are doing wonderful things in research laboratories. We really don't understand this vast infinity of inner space, so that with all my solutions that I propound rather radically in the book, which is incidentally the perfect um, uh, lockdown reading, I must commend it to everyone. And very reasonably <laughs> priced as well. And very reasonably priced and available in all good bookshops. And, and from me direct, if you go on my website gives food for thought and I think is the more important direction we should be going to save our future. I think some people might be surprised to hear a veteran explorer saying, oh, we don't want to know what's on Mars. We should, in fact, you, you almost literally say we should be contemplating our navels. I mean, there's an extraordinary fact about naval bacteria in it that's very eye-catching. Yes, I find the exploration of inner space just as exciting as outer space. The research on navels was extraordinary. There was something like 2,500 navels were examined for the first time. I mean, nobody had really taken much interest in tummy buttons, but they took little bits of fluff out and examined them. And they found that of the 2,500 navels examined, they found several thousand bacteria half of which were new to science and had never been studied, and some of which, in an extraordinary twist, which gives one an insight into how incredibly ancient and diverse this planet is, one of them they had only found once before in a core sample from 40,000 feet down in the Antarctic, and yet they found it on a European naval. So there is this incredible diversity of life, and that's what we should be studying. Is that, that interest in inner space in the if you like, non-geographical type of exploration, something's been a shift in your life and in your career. I mean, was there a point at which you suddenly went, you know what, this is what's really interesting? Well, for years I've been saying, since I did my big expedition, we had 130 scientists living for 15 months in the Borneo rainforest. We cracked the rainforest code. We found out how rainforests worked. And what those scientists were saying was that the diversity and the 
symbiotic relationships of the rainforest were incredibly diverse, much more so than had previously been understood, and that this was what was needed to study, and that what mustn't happen was that the rainforest should be cut down because they would leave behind a desert. And that really started my interest in seeing the wonder of small things and of, of diversity within nature. And it is actually so interesting and so much more fascinating, and it is pure exploration. I mean, when you look through a, one of the, the more powerful microscopes and you look into these microbes, it's like entering a cave system and finding more and more smaller and smaller life forms within there. And, of course, many of the exciting new microbes that are being discovered are being found in uh, remote tropical areas. So you can still have your adventure and your discovery by going into the richest, diverse environments on Earth, like coral reefs and rainforests, and uh, keep that diversity alive. Meanwhile, unfortunately, nobody listened, and dreadful things have happened over the last 40 years. Half the Amazon rainforest, which I first crossed in the late 50s, has gone in my lifetime, and most of the forests of Southeast Asia have been destroyed. So we need to have very radical solutions, which I have proposed for getting round that. I mean, some of them people wince at, but I think we have to stop eating meat that is produced in vast feedlots full of hormones and so on, and only eat meat that has been reared uh, wild and farm you know, on grassland. At the same time, there is a terrible irony that in South America the rainforests are being destroyed at a vast rate to put cattle on the land, which just simply doesn't work. So after the, they've destroyed the huge areas of land, and I've just been there last year and seen it, you have huge swathes of soya bean. Do you know what the soya has been grown for? To feed the feedlots in North America, which are supplying all the hamburger meat for the rest of the world. And that's complete obscenity. What I suggest, rather radically, is that it's time, as the Finns are now doing, to produce synthetic food, which is indistinguishable from the real thing. And nobody really notices when they eat a hamburger whether the mince meat in it has been produced synthetically, which can be done very, very cheaply. The technology is now available. And that would mean that all these huge areas where the soybean grows could be abandoned and the rainforest could be allowed to regrow. Simple explanation, but complicated to do. Yes, I mean, we should maybe go sort of horseman by horseman in rather a telegraphic way, because we haven't got all that long, but because you have different solutions for each of the horsemen you see. First one, the... First one is pestilence. Pestilence. And you say microbes. Now, microbes, you know, the pestilence we've been hit by is one that's actually viral. Is that something that microbes can help with? An understanding of microbes would certainly help with that, an understanding of the way in which microbes differ and the role that they play in our health, I think should be a complete revolution in medicine. And instead of medicine applying principles which have worked in the past, that this particular plant product which has helped to palliate illness in the past, we'll try it again and see if that works. Instead, I think everybody should have a biological passport signal which doctors could just look at and say these are the things that are are looking wrong and start the other end. We're now realising with every breath we take, we breathe out something like 40 million bacteria. With those, you can tell so much about what's wrong with a person and what potentially would be helped. So I think there is a huge medical revolution coming and the study of microbes would 
resolve that. And it could also completely revolutionise agriculture because we're more and more realising that the role that microbes have to play in health of soil and nature has been largely neglected over the last decades, during which farming has expanded fast with a sort of green revolution, but that has been at the expense of putting masses of fertiliser and pesticides on the ground and sterilising large areas of the planet. It can't go on. We have to have a different way and recognise that by using the power of microbes we can actually produce everything we need without destroying the soil in the process. Now, with, with war, your solution is electricity, unexpectedly. Well, war, I'm slightly bending the rules here, but uh, war usually comes about as a result of poverty and uh, overpopulation and uh, ignorance of various sorts, causing people to uh, be mobilised in furious rioting. Look what's happening at the moment in America, practically at war with itself as a result of what happened over there. But most wars start in uh, desert areas by people being dissatisfied with their lot. And my solution would be free electricity for all. Now, this is not impossible any longer, with solar panels being dirt cheap. If everybody had solar panels, it would be immensely liberating. Imagine your average um, housewife in Africa who in the rural areas spends the first few hours of the day going and cutting down the remaining bits of forest in order to make charcoal, in order to cook some food, and then spending the next few hours going down to a muddy, dirty river and bringing water up for the family. Now, a solar panel with a cooker and a pump would resolve that and liberate her to go on the internet and uh, get a degree if necessary or find other outlets for talent. And that itself would be one of the solutions to um, the population problem, which is that poverty and ignorance are the cause of so much of the growth of population, having far too many children, because most of them are going to die. Whereas if everybody was reasonably prosperous with a modicum of electricity and freedom, they wouldn't gradually, over time, need to have so many children. I think you also suggest somewhere in the book there might be a connection that when people get television, they spend less time in bed. <laughs> yeah, that has been suggested. I think they could do better than uh, just lie in bed and watch television. But um, what the internet can be used for good is by providing education for everybody. And that's very liberating. We've touched on what you're talking about, famine and food, you know, changing our diets. You also have extensive material in the book on the idea of seeding weather, which is kind of fascinating because this is... I thought it was the stuff of science fiction that you can control climate, but you say very much not. Or control weather, sorry, not climate. This is the most provocative of my uh, radical solutions. Many people don't know that in 1945, two uh, American bombers took off. One went to Hiroshima, the Enola Gay, and dropped the first atom bomb. Almost at exactly the same time, another one was dropping the first cloud seeding experiments over the Nevada desert. And since then, the military in, in all the great countries of the world have been working on rain weather management. And it's been very secretive. And I think we should now grasp the nettle. People have been very scared of the idea of controlling the weather because, of course, it could be used for very bad purposes as well as good ones. There is an international treaty which says that controlling the weather can never be used for 
war for military purposes, and that's been signed up by practically every country in the world. So I say the time has come to look at manipulating the weather. Research is what's needed. There's some very amateurish experiments have been going on, and some of them have gone catastrophically wrong, which, of course, has set it all back. There's a lovely story about uh, the time that President Bush went for the first Russian May Day celebration, and he was standing beside President Putin. This was uh, 2008 or 2005, anyway, it was a few years ago. It was pouring down with rain. They were standing in the Kremlin, and he said, uh, I didn't think it uh, rained on your parade, Mr Putin. And Mr Putin said, just watch this space, Mr Bush. And half an hour later, the skies cleared, and uh, they had their big parade in sunshine. Bush said, how did you do that? And Mr Putin said, we did what we always do. We made it rain in the Ukraine. And that morning, they'd sent 30 planes up with cloud seeding, sodium chloride, and even raw cement, and dumped all the clouds that were rolling in. The rain had all fallen in the Ukraine before it got to Moscow. And there are many stories like that which are true. I was going to say sceptics, though, or at least the anxious among us, will light on the one story you include where, I think it was in the 50s or possibly the 60s, an American attempt to stop a hurricane offshore. This B-52 flies out and drops, you know, whatever it is it drops to try and prevent the hurricane from coming in. And the hurricane then follows the plane back inside and destroys a city. Well, more or less, it was diverted to somewhere else and a lot of people got killed. These are setbacks. I'm not saying we should do this necessarily. I'm saying we should research it, just as we should learn more about how microbes work rather than fart about in outer space. So we should learn more about how the weather actually works. It's incredibly complicated. I mean, I've been to the Met Office outside Exeter. They have the biggest computer in the world trying to understand how the weather, what weather forecasts, and we all know that they're not that accurate. But that's where we should be devoting our resources. So that's famine. If it just rained an inch or two on the deserts of the world, it would revolutionise life in the desert. I've spent a good deal of my time travelling with the Tuareg in the Sahara, and I've seen where a small amount of rain has fallen after maybe five years of drought, and immediately the whole desert blooms. If we can send spaceships to Mars, surely we can move the clouds a bit, because most of the rain falls on the sea and the wrong places, and manipulating that seems to me something worth researching. And then finally there's the fourth horseman, which is death, and for that I use climate change and global warming, and the very exciting potentials of geoengineering, carbon sequestration and so on, to try and restore the health of the planet. Now some of these are really wacky and scary things that people are proposing, I mean, giant mirrors in outer space and seeding the oceans to bring more plankton blooms. But some of them make very good sense and can be applied. That's where we should be devoting our research, is to stop um, global warming passing the 2% mark, which would be catastrophic, as we all now know. And also, in the same breath, I include the ghastly amount of plastic we're pushing into the environment. I don't think people know about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, one of the most horrendous things in the world, where an island twice the size of Spain, twice the size of Spain, is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and that's where all the plastic has gathered. 33,000 tonnes comes down the Yangtze every day. It's not, again, beyond the wit of man to devote efforts to clear that up. I mean, I have a dream of seeing large 
ships, aircraft carriers steaming into there, sucking it all up and turning it into bricks. We should be doing that instead of spending equivalent amounts of money on sending spaceships up into find out whether there's a microbe on Mars, which I don't care about particularly. I think it's actually suggested that microbes might be a solution to the Pacific garbage patch, isn't it? They're, they're of course, trying to find of plastic course. digesting microbes. Of course, microbes would do the job. One thing that I, you know, should raise, because, you know, this being The Spectator, some of our writers and some of our readers and presumably some of the listeners of this podcast are still not convinced that either the global warming is happening or that it's an, a man-made process. What would you say to them? Well, I would say if there was a 1% chance that it was and that we were likely to bring about the worst forecasts of extinction of life on Earth, then we should be devoting every effort to uh, resolving it. And it clearly isn't a 1%. I mean, there may be a debate about to what extent global warming is man-made, but I don't think anybody doesn't agree that some of it is caused by us. And most scientists would say that it is largely caused by our actions. And uh, I think that debate has almost been won. It's nitpicking not to want to do something about it. There is no doubt that the world is facing very serious threats and we should be devoting our efforts to solving those problems rather than this, this escapist attitude of, of wanting to... It's, it is interesting outer space, but really, do we want to abandon this planet and go and make new worlds elsewhere? I can't imagine people want to spend their futures in spacesuits in an atmosphere with no oxygen... It's a nightmare scenario. It's a sort of give up on this planet and run somewhere else. Is a, a council of despair. One of the themes that goes through the book quite often is, is your friend and occasional Cornwall neighbour, I think you said, James Lovelock, and his Gaia hypothesis. Now, towards the end of the book, you quote Lovelock to the effect that he says there's two ways we can fix our relationship to the planet. One of them is to live in harmony with it in the way that many native and peoples did and the other one of which is to live as an extremely high-tech society and that there's no in-between which side of that do you come down on <laughs> very difficult question i don't entirely agree i'm a f f terrific fan of jim lovelock and admirer of all he's done i don't always agree he he pushes the limits in making it, making one make these radical choices. I think one can have the best of both worlds, potentially. I mean, we are the brightest beings that have ever existed. We have this incredible brain, which is the most complicated thing that nature has ever produced. And we should use it to the purposes of solving the problems, which we're perfectly capable of doing. I have great faith in uh, the ability of scientists to come up with solutions to these problems. And at the same time, the other end of the scale, I've spent a lot of my time living with tribal people in different parts of the world and seeing their very different attitude to the management and our relationship with the planet. And what is exciting is that I think people are beginning to come round to that point of view. Perhaps the silver lining of this dreadful pandemic we're going through is that through no planes flying and few cars on the road. We've seen already, in just bare couple of months, the change that's happened. Nature is incredibly resilient, and give it half a chance, and we will restore the planet to health. It is not impossible, I believe. I am an optimist, and I believe that if we actually learnt how to control and 
help nature to restore life on Earth, it would happen much more quickly and we could live in the paradise that is possible for us. It's, it's, it's very difficult because we have this human ability to destroy everything, but we also have the ability to make it right again. Do you think Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis holds up? Uh, yes, as a general idea, the world is a single interrelated organism. We're learning that increasingly as we discover the incredible symbiotic relationships of microbes. Our whole bodies are really just a mass of microbes making us tick. And we put food in one end and it comes out the other and, and the microbes feed on that. It's a completely different way of looking at, at life. I mean, what we have done agriculturally in destroying so much of the natural way in which the planet heals itself, we can reverse that by uh, allowing nature to take over. So, yes, I do, in general, agree with the Gaia hypothesis. The structure and the title of your book are borrowed from this sort of Christian Book of Revelation mythos, but a sort of long narrative strand that kind of goes all the way through that frames it is your relationship or interest in the Mayan civilization. You know, you begin watching the sun rise over a ruined Mayan city. You know, you return to the Maya again and again. Why is that? Well, I use the Maya as a means of making the book a bit more interesting and readable because uh, just giving facts about the science can get a bit uh, tendentious. But it could have been any civilization. I spent some time a few years ago visiting most of the Maya sites, and it struck me that they were unusual in that the Maya civilization vanished after about 500 years of huge power and sophistication. If you look around the world, civilizations last for about 500 years, and then for some reason they expire. And in the past, when that's happened, another neighbouring civilization has usually overwhelmed them and taken over their land, and the people who expired have moved on to somewhere else. Well, we're running out of places to move on to on the planet. There isn't any more available rainforest, available wilderness. And so we're now on a planetary scale doing what previous civilizations have experienced. And so it seemed to me to be the time to use the Maya as an example of what happens, because quite clearly their civilization expired through the overexploitation of their resources on the, the limestone of the Peten rainforest. And that is what we are doing on a global scale now. And almost all civilizations have expired for the same reason in the past. And so I just use them as an example. And time and again, when we were travelling through the remoter parts of the Maya country, we came on research stations which were trying to find out ways of using the richness of the rainforest to make life sustainable for the local people. And this is where I think funds should be devoted to help those people. Unfortunately, it's very difficult at the moment to get young scientists who have just graduated to go and live in the rainforest rather than work for some large corporation. That's something that needs changing. And indeed why the internet and solar panels actually make it all now much more possible to live in comfort in remote research stations. So research, research, research underpins everything that I say in this book about where we should be looking to um, find solutions to the disasters which are undoubtedly looming in the background. 
Robin Hanbury-Tenderson, thank you very much indeed, and welcome back to health. Thank you, Sam. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.